0: Let's turn to John chapter 20 this morning. John chapter 20, we're walking through the book of Exodus. We're taking a little excursus today to examine the text of Scripture that John uses to testify to the resurrection of Christ. Of course, the entire Bible points to Jesus, uh, both backward and forward. And so when we take this passage, we recognize that we are simply picking up uh, what is and has been known in Christian faith as the the climax of human history. And so we'll read it this day and notice the implications of the fact that Christ rose from the dead. We're looking really at the, the results of that first resurrection. John chapter 20, we'll read verses 1 through 23. These are not man's reflections about God. Uh, it's not even a made-up story. It's A fact, but it is also God's Word written to His people. Let's give attention to it. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid Him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and stooping in to look, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is God's word. Let's pray for the help of his spirit. Oh, Father, we ask now that as we come to your word, that you would quiet our minds and our hearts, give us attention. I pray that you would speak to your people, give us ears to hear what you would say. And I ask, Father God, that you would again be willing to use an ordinary sinful crooked stick like me to point this narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Sinclair Ferguson tells a story of a a debate that took place in the darkest days of Soviet Russia in communism in the early 1950s. It was an occasion around Easter time where the communist authorities desired to publicly debunk the supposed myth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so they brought together one of their young, sharp academic scholars who was skilled in rhetoric And they pitted this debate against an aged country Orthodox priest. The the debate, of course, is is staged in such a way to make sure that the Communist Party can utterly disprove the doctrine of the resurrection. People gathered to this event full of anticipation. The Communist leader and scholar begins the presentation then with a a series of arguments. It's a presentation that's built on rhetorical skill. It's, It's well rehearsed which he thought would, of course, disprove the resurrection. He takes great detail. He takes great time to communicate these arguments. And then he comes to his final conclusion. It's totally expected, as obvious and as tired and well-worn as it is. His conclusion is this, Jesus did not rise from the dead. It was simply the imagination of the women and men of the first century. Then with a cynical look, he stares over at the, at the priest, and he says, Now prove your risen Savior if you can. The priest gets up. He slowly walks towards the podium. He knows this congregation, the groups of people in this town, much better than the scholar does. He knows that there is deep faith in the hearts of these people of this small village. So as he walks to the podium, he stops and he simply greets them with the ancient Orthodox Easter morning greeting. The Lord is risen. And the congregation, the audience, the crowd responds with one thunderous voice back. He is risen indeed. The communist authorities so frustrated, so angry ended the debate right there, but its results stood as a testimony of the faith of the people. That not only was the resurrection of Jesus Christ an historical event, but Christ and his resurrection continues not only in 1950s communism, but even today to influence and to shape the hearts of the people so that even the earthly powers of man cannot suppress the truth. The people of that crowd were doing exactly what Mary Magdalene is doing when she sees the risen Christ 1900 years earlier. They're clinging to the Christ and clinging to the power of the resurrection. So this morning, I simply want to show you from our text that the resurrected Christ summons your clinging. We're going to use three points. Jesus calls you by name. He calms your fears. He secures your peace. You first notice that he calls you by name. I suspect it really was a very fitful Saturday for Mary. Like so many of the followers of Jesus, Mary was surprised. She's actually heartbroken, of course, by the events of Friday. And she she thought that this this Jesus was the promised Redeemer, the long-awaited Messiah. And yet they watched as He was put to death in a gruesome fashion. Other gospel writers tell us that Mary is not alone on that morning. There's at least four other women who are walking in these pre-dawn hours to carry spices to the tomb for Jesus but John simply places the camera lens over Mary Magdalene. Mark's gospel tells us that this is the woman from whom Jesus delivered seven demons. Hers was an early life that was full of torment. Just weeks back, this is the Mary who watched when Jesus called her dead brother out of the tomb, Lazarus, by name. And he stands up and he walks out to the astonishment of the sisters and the crowd. Mary is the woman who sat at the feet of Jesus. While her sister Martha busies herself in the kitchen, Martha gets upset. Mary is listening carefully to the words of Jesus. This is the woman that Judas grumbled about eight days ago. In his eyes, Mary has wasted a hundred thousand dollar bottle of ointment, pouring it all over Jesus's feet, anointing his feet, wiping them with her hair. Leave her alone, gentlemen. She is preparing me for burial. At that time, Mary had no idea that she would be coming back to the grave days later to add spices to the body of Jesus. Five women are said to have arrived at the tomb, and it's empty. But of those five, John is the one who tells us that it was Mary Magdalene who ran back to tell Peter and John. John keeps referring to himself in a, in a veiled third person. Verse 2, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. You can tell that she's thinking, is it, is it grave robbers? Jesus is a popular polarizing figure. It's possible. And then in the race to the tomb, John says that he arrived first and he, and he stoops and he looks in and he is more timid than Peter. But the very first thing he sees is the linen cloths lying there. Peter arrives not timid at all. He walks straight into the tomb and Peter sees the same thing. But then verse 7 says there's something a little bit odd about it. Verse 7 The face cloth, which has been over Jesus' head, is folded neatly in a different spot. Grave robbers do not unwrap a body, especially one that's been anointed with 75 pounds of ointment two days earlier. They certainly don't take the time to fold up a burial shroud and, and lay it in an orderly fashion to the side. John says, we saw it and I believed. But then he honestly says at that moment, none of us were even expecting that the Christ would rise as the scripture says. It's only in coming days that we begin to get it. From here forward, what John does is he moves from the facts about the resurrection, as provable as they were, to the meaning of the resurrection. He he goes directly to the individual experiences of those who saw the Christ. And this is where he invites you and me to consider the implications. And so as I say, the camera lens focuses on Mary. Stooping, she breaks down in tears as she looks into the tomb again. This time, two angels are sitting in the spot where Jesus' body was laid And there's a brief conversation. She's confused. She must have stood up and turned around. And you can understand, given the setting, given the weight, why she would say, what's the gardener? Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? It was Jesus' voice, true enough. But when he calls her by this generic name, woman, she doesn't know his voice. And you remember her deep distress. You remember the words that she just spoke to the angel a few minutes ago. She's absolutely stuck on the fact that somebody has stolen the body of Jesus. Verse 16, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. And then Jesus fulfills the words that he spoke back in John chapter 10, verse 3. Back where he said, I am the good shepherd my own, hear my voice, and I call them by name. John 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And that's why Jesus calls her by name, Mary. And then it is as if her eyes are opened, as if the pre-dawn darkness is symbolic of her inability to see up to that point. Jesus calls her by name and she responds to the voice of her master, Rabboni. And immediately she worships him and she rejoices because the one that she saw die on the cross Friday stands before her and he is alive forevermore. She spiritually clings to Christ even as she physically falls on her face and grabs his feet and clings to them. John tells us this story with such detail because it's a factual event. But he also tells it through the lens of personal experience. Why? He does it this way because the same thing can happen to you. So that like Mary, you can hear the voice of Jesus You can hear Him call you by name, and then when you hear that voice, you would respond to the resurrected Christ with the same certainty, the same exuberance, the same trust, the same clinging in faith. The Bible tells us of this story in such a precise way. Why? John chapter 20, verse 31 so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so today, if you hear His voice call you by name, do not harden your heart. I'm not talking about an audible voice from the sky. Even if you've run from His voice in the past, Jesus still summons that you would come and trust Him as your Savior. That you would embrace the Christ who offers to pay for your sins. That you would, by responding to His voice, choose to embrace eternal life rather than eternal separation from God. Now, to be very clear, because Jesus is alive, He still calls out to His people by name. In fact, the voice of the Lord Jesus calls out many times and in many ways throughout your life. Maybe you've experienced the way that Mary did at first. You heard the voice of Jesus, but you didn't know it was his voice. Perhaps you went to a church service and you heard the word of God preached. You felt convicted, you felt moved, perhaps even disrupted. Like Mary, you turned your back, you shook your head, and you said, no, that's a man talking. Perhaps you know what it is like when the Lord speaks into the deepest, darkest plates of your hearts, and you you feel a sense of conviction over your pride, over your sin, and though you hear the voice of Jesus, you simply prefer to think of it in human terms. Maybe you've heard Jesus' through a Christian friend or family member, or you've watched that person be changed over the years. And even as you've seen them change, even as you've witnessed the outcome of their faith in their life, you confuse the voice of Jesus and you say, well, they're just kind of self-disciplined people, or he's just a good guy, or she's just a sweet woman. Or maybe it was your friend or your family member who invited you to believe upon the Lord Jesus, to to have life in His name. But in the moment when Jesus called you by name, you chose instead to be bothered by the offense. What? You think I'm a sinner? You think I would need a Savior? And all the while, you've closed your ears to the very voice of Christ. And doesn't it happen that the Lord... Calls to us through suffering, that the Lord summons us through loss, through trials, even through temptation. And we say to ourselves, No, there is no message here. Surely it's just a difficult season. I just need to get past it. You see, this is the voice of Jesus. And if you will listen, He calls you by name and He says, Would you come? And trust me and wait upon me and look to me as your redeemer and your healer, the one who binds up the broken places of your heart, the one who heals those hurt spots in your soul. And then to those of you who have heard Jesus call you by name, if you've responded, then what he said in John 10 is absolutely certain for you. The good shepherd knows his sheep. That's the reason he calls them by name. In fact, if you've responded to the Lord Jesus in faith, Jesus knows you better than you know yourself, including the worst parts. And he still loves you. And it is his death and it is his resurrection that prove that. The resurrected Christ summons your clinging. He calls you by name. Secondly, he calms your fears. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, context makes clear what would otherwise be a very confusing statement. Was Jesus opposed to being touched No, he's going to welcome that Thomas should touch his hands and his side eight days from this point. But instead, let's think about Mary's emotional state. She's been running. She's in tears. The circumstances have led her to believe only one conclusion. Somebody stole the body of Jesus. And so when she turns and she suddenly realizes that she's looking at Jesus, she's overcome with emotion. She falls at his feet. She holds on to him. And she says, she, she has, in a sense, a desire to never let him go. Any mom or dad who's ever lost a child at the mall or at the grocery store or at the park, you know that feeling. You find the child and you look at him and you grab him and you say, I'm never going to let you out of my sight again she's clinging. I've used that word in a positive way this morning because spiritually that really is the right response. And Jesus says, Mary, you don't have to cling to me physically. Why not? Because I'm not leaving yet. Jesus will appear and reappear several times over the next 40 days. He says, I'll go back to the Father, but I'm not going yet. And we don't know what Mary understood in the moment, but writing so many years later, John knew that the words of Jesus were meant to calm the fears of any person who would cling to him in faith. I want you to consider these three comforts first. Number one, where has Jesus been? On the cross, on Friday, God exercised his perfect judgment on sin The Father turned His face from the only begotten Son so that on that cross, Jesus, for the first and only time in all of eternity, Jesus experienced a separation from God. And there on that cross, He plumbed the depths of hell's punishment for sins for His people on the cross. And God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that you and I meet, might become the righteousness of God. And then Jesus' body was laid into the ground from Friday to Sunday while his spirit went and, and enjoyed the blessed presence of the Father once again. Where has Jesus been? Well, he's been to hell on earth and back to his Father's right hand. And his wounds have already gone and pleaded for his people, And so it is in some early morning hour of Sunday, the spirit of of Jesus and the body of Jesus are reunited. Why would that calm your fears? Because the work of salvation is complete. Death holds no more sway for those of us who are in Christ. And so when Mary meets him, his ascension has not yet occurred, but justification for sins has already been accomplished, death's stranglehold over us has been crushed. Lots of pastors have told this story. It was June 2005. There's a Kenyan peasant farmer who is out in his field. He's a grandfather named Daniel Imbarugu. He's out there tending his potatoes and his bean crop in a rural field near Mount Kenya. And then suddenly, while he's working with his machete, out of the brush springs a leopard who chases and leaps upon the elderly man. The leopard latches on to his wrist and he begins to maul the man with his claws. And Imbarugu, who had been using this machete to harvest, dropped the machete. So he has no weapon at all in his hand. Staring face to face with the mouth and the jaws of death, he knows he has nothing else to do. So he takes his hand and he reaches inside the jaws of the leopard and he grabs hold of the tongue and he begins to rip the tongue from the mouth of the leopard. It's graphic. the NBC article that I read made me chuckle. It said that in his own testimony, when the leopard screamed, the birds stopped singing. He heard an utter silence, and this was my favorite part. Local authorities hailed him as a hero and gave him free medical care at the hospital. I tell you that, friends, because on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus did that very thing. He reached into the mouth of death, and he ripped the tongue out. And he secured salvation and conquered death and hell. Over the next 40 days between resurrection and ascension, Mary and several other disciples are going to see Jesus. And when he appears and disappears and walks through walls and eats food, when he touches others and is himself touched, when he's eyewitnessed by more than 500 people, all of this is meant to calm the fears of those who not only followed him in his earthly life, but also the fears of those of us who would follow him by faith for eternity. Your salvation is accomplished. Number two, where is Jesus going? He is going back to the Father fully. But in this moment, He has not fully left yet. That's why Jesus uses two different verbs. He says, I have not yet ascended, but tell my brothers I'm ascending. That is, Jesus is in the process of ascending. What does that mean? Well, after Jesus rose from the grave, He was no longer constrained as He was during the days of His earthly flesh and blood. He is already glorified. So, John tells us of three different reappearances. The question you and I would ask is, where did Jesus go in between those reappearances? Does he have a hideout in a cave somewhere? No. In his glorified body, Jesus moves between earth and heaven with ease because the earth is no longer his home. Which is why the New Testament writers begin to speak as though once Christ rose from the dead, He went ahead and assumed His rightful place. He's exalted again to the majesty on high. Until He ascends, Mary and every one of the followers of Jesus Christ could rightly assume or expect He could appear anywhere. That was meant to calm their fears in the moment. But what does it say to you and me? John 17, Jesus said, when I finally ascend, when I go to be with my Father, I'm going to prepare a place for you. The first comfort, of course, Jesus accomplished your salvation. Second comfort, he's gone ahead to prepare a place for those who cling to him in faith. And finally, what does he call you? It's really easy, I think, to gloss over this. Mary, go to my brother's how does this calm your fears? Have you ever wondered if it's possible for God to fully accept you? I bet Peter wondered that. Three days earlier, he denies him. I've never met him. Don't know the man. I bet every one of his disciples is wondering the same thing. I mean, when it came time for the arrest, they're all gone. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your friendship. And yet, by the death and resurrection and exaltation, Jesus' disciples become his brothers. They share in the sonship of this Father in heaven. He says, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so, while we are not equal with the Son in any way, God has chosen to adopt us through the ministry of Christ. And he's granted to us some of these privileges. Romans chapter 8, verse 16, you are are adopted sons. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, Jesus who sanctifies. And those who are sanctified all have one source, God. That's why He's not ashamed to call them brothers. Do you think He could accept you? Yes. Yes. He has purchased your salvation. He's prepared a place for you. He's willing to call you his brothers. That should calm your fears. So here, the resurrected Christ summons your clinging, calls you by name, calms your fears. Lastly, he secures your place. That evening, most of the disciples are gathered together behind a locked door out of fear. Jesus came, He stood in their presence. Look at verse 19. Peace be with you. And he shows him his hands and he shows him the side. And he's confirming for them I am the one that you saw die on the cross on Friday. And now I stand before you in a glorified, resurrected body. And then he repeats the same phrase again, verse 21. Peace be with you. It's not a casual greeting. It's not an attempt to, to gloss over the awkward fact that all of you ran for your lives a couple of days ago. It's a declaration. "I," says Jesus, have secured your peace with God, and then from that peace with God, He commissions His disciples to go forward and take this message of peace. And so it's only in the context of, of, of what I've just described that chapter, excuse me, that verse 22 and 23 make sense. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And one of the ways that you know what Jesus meant is how his disciples responded. How did they go about the forgiveness of sins? Did they set up a tribunal of judges? You get forgiveness, you don't. You get forgiveness, you don't. No they go about preaching this gospel of peace and forgiveness. Acts chapter 2 records this first act of proclaiming that message, forgiveness and peace. Peter's sermon at Pentecost, you see what Christ is really saying is this, I'm putting in your hands the one message that the entire world needs to hear. It's the one and only way that fallen, needy, hurting sinners could ever find peace. And that's the message that we proclaim today. That is that the death and resurrection of Jesus opens wide the offer of salvation to anyone who would come and trust in Jesus by faith. Anyone who would come and receive and rest upon him alone will receive forgiveness of your sins and thereby receive peace eternally with God. This is the Savior that Christians cling to. This is the message that we return to day after day, week after week. But if you have never called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never known this God of forgiveness and peace, it is today that the resurrected Christ summons you. Cling to me in faith He calls you by name. He's ready and willing to calm your fears, and He's ready to secure your peace. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We ask that through the ministry of Your Spirit, You would bind Your Word to the hearts of Your people, that You would open the ears of those who have not heard before and give them salvation today through Christ. We pray that you will now bless the remainder of our worship, including song and sacrament. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.